It's S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 5, starring Steve Martin, originally aired on October 23rd, 1976. Welcome, everyone. My name is Keith, and with me, as always, is my good buddy, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hi, Keith. And joining us for this somewhat historic night of Saturday Night Live, his name is Mark. Hello, Mark. Hey, how's it going, guys? So, um, yeah, Steve Martin. My memories are from the movies. Of course, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, The Three Amigos. I never saw The Jerk, actually, until it was uh, a bit later. But I was very familiar, of course, as a kid in the 80s with all the 80s comedies. His Saturday Night Live clips have been rather legendary, so I saw them quite early. Some of the first, I would say, vintage Saturday Night Live I was exposed to included him. In fact... Young me just thought he was, at some point I thought Steve Martin was a cast member on the show. Yeah, I've had a very similar experience, actually. I think my first uh, exposure was of the Three Amigos. Uh, it was a little later that I got to Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, but I think that's probably for the best. I don't know if I would have gotten that one as a kid. Yeah, I also thought, like I just assumed, because so many of his appearances are iconic, that he was also just a, a cast member at some point. And I do recall a Saturday Night Live sketch from when I was a teenager where they had like the handful of people who had hosted a million times and Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin were both involved in that. And yeah, Steve Martin is currently uh, holds second spot for most times hosted. He's at 15 and Alec Baldwin is at 17. This is his first of 15 hosting gigs and first of 27 appearances, I believe. Just a quick bio of Steve Martin. He's born in 1945 in Waco, Texas, so that makes him about 31 in this appearance. He was, at this point, I mean, he was not uh, a film guy. He was an absurdist comedian doing the stand-up thing, although I don't consider him so much stand-up. He was a writer for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. At this point in time, he was a white-hot stand-up comedian. Many ways, he's certainly, to me, more of a surrealist performance artist, more in the vein of Andy Kaufman than in a, you know, a Robert Klein or a George Carlin. And he had either just finished or was just about to finish writing for the short-lived Dick Van Dyke variety show called uh, Van Dyke and Company. Certainly a hot, uh, hot commodity at this point. Fascinating history. I was wondering earlier, what was the perception of Steve Martin at this time? Because it was difficult for me a little bit to put myself in the mindset. Like, what do people right now think of Steve Martin? Because I knew mm. he's, you know, he's not the big star. Obviously, he's like, no, I shouldn't say star. He's not the big actor yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely got a sense that the audience was very excited for him to be there. So I was, I was also wondering that because I, I didn't think he had many movie appearances at this point. And and you know, the old, old stand-up routines don't like they weren't doing HBO specials back then like they do now. But it definitely seemed like the people in the room were very excited for him to be there. So there was some, uh, I don't want to say objection, I'll say hesitation uh, by Lauren Michaels uh, for getting Steve Martin to host. Um, there's more about it in the Live from New York book. But basically, I, I don't know if the, the perception was, not that he wouldn't be good, but that he might not fit with the, uh, the show they were doing. You know, we'll see based on this, but we certainly know over history that, you know, Michaels was wrong there. And also this episode, as well as last week's, is also being shot over in Brooklyn. 
at Studio One because Studio 8H is still being used for the election coverage. Yeah, it was interesting. It's nice. It was refreshing in, a, in its own way. And they, they really got the technical aspects. There's so many gaffes in that last episode that, uh, that just weren't there this episode. They do seem to have a lot more room in this location. Like some of them sets are huge. It was nice that a couple of times during the episode, they do a nice pan out. And I always find that interesting to look at. Yeah, there were a couple of good ones getting to, to peek behind the curtain. Yeah, where it's pulling back and you can see where the wall blocks off and recognize the, the stage from the other side and see everyone like buzzing around to get everything done. So let's break down the show here. We go to the cold opening. So Dan Aykroyd is voicing the manager of the New York Yankees. And he's standing on a stool and his head is obscured. So what happened was the Yankees were swept in the World Series. The Cincinnati Reds went for nothing over the Yankees. Aykroyd, as the manager, is trying to console his team. Chevy, playing one of the baseball players, stands up. The coach says it won't happen again. Chevy kicks the chair out or the stool out from under him and the manager has hung himself. And then Chevy says, live from New York, it's Saturday night. So this is the first time we have a cold open without a fall. Eliminating the fall opens up a big wall of possibilities, so I was glad to see that. However, uh, this wasn't particularly funny to me. Very refreshing, I uh, thought as well, of course, about the fall. It was obviously just something relevant to the time. At least they kept it pretty short. Wow, getting blown out for nothing in the World Series for the Yankees must have been a horrible embarrassment at the time. Yeah, that's that's a, a dirty sting to take. And I mean, I don't know that technically there wasn't a fall. There's, the fall got stopped, and I think that was the joke by a noose. Yeah, it was a little dark, and, and the way like Chevy slides into the frame while Dan Aykroyd's feet were still kicking in the background, it was it was, it was not the funniest thing I've ever seen. It was more of a like a shock open. Yeah, for sure. I also meant to go back and check and see if that was actually Aykroyd or to figure out if it was Aykroyd or if it might have been someone else and he was just doing the voice from off stage. So then we go to the monologue. Steve Martin comes out to home base. He's in a trademark white suit. He uh, does a bit where he says he's sincere to be there. It's great to be there. Great to be here. He moves around. He drinks water, spits it out. Basically, this is of just Steve Martin at his bizarre self. Then he pops out a banjo and sings Rambling Guy, the least catchy tune of all time. Then he does the arrow through the head bit. The thing I like about Steve Martin, especially at this point in time, he has a way of proactively like avoiding awkwardness by making it part of the act. To me, this is like entertainment about entertainment. No matter what happens, it seems to just be part of the show, even if it's like these awkward pauses and stuff. I, I did enjoy this a lot. Yeah, he does a really good job of keeping the energy up and staying engaged. Uh, I had a really good laugh at the this take with the water. By modern day sensibilities, some of the stuff might come across as a little hacky, but that's only because it's been overdone since he made it a thing. But yeah, and and this was one of those moments where like the live audience was so into it and, and that kind of helps you get into it. Yeah, I loved it. Wild, refreshing, original kind of stand up at the time. Uh, certainly Steve Martin. I thought it was one of the better monologues we've seen in quite some time. So then we go to uh, a commercial. It's an in-studio, like, live commercial. Chevy Chase speaking for milk. Basically, Chevy gives a bunch of positive qualities of milk, and then he, he slips into something bad about milk and starts to go off on a tangent and either cuts himself off or gets cut off. And he keeps having to restart. We get a quick cameo from longtime stage manager Joe Disco. I actually really enjoyed this as well. I thought this was one of Chevy's better outings. He's good at this uh, particular character. I mean, he never really did it a lot. He was very convincing. It just seemed, it was just silly and it cracked me up. Yeah, he's got really good deadpan delivery and like 
being a bit of a jerk, you know, like not getting it and slipping into the negative things so casually. Uh, I think he sold it really well. Yeah, this was this was enjoyable. Yeah, I worried at first that this was going to be one of them Polaroid like the Polaroid commercials they used to do where this was a legit commercial for milk. And and maybe that's a testament to Chevy because at first I thought that's where he was going. And then he starts talking about, you know, sour breath and all this sort of stuff. I'm assuming maybe at the time that there was some sort of pro-milk ads on the air. Oh, I think so. Yeah, they, they surface every five years or so, I think, don't they? Yeah, like I grew up on the the got milk with the milk mustaches. I think before that there was the like random people painted like cows thing, like Dougie. <laughs> hey Dougie, what's your secret? The one I remember was milk does a body good. Yes. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. That's from when I was looking. So yeah, big milk, man. They got deep pockets. <laughs> Everybody's been worried about big oil, but maybe big milk is ruling the world. <laughs> So we go to a Chiron, and uh, there's a woman there who keeps undressing, mentally undressing the rest of the audience. I kind of chuckled at that one, actually. And now we go to Jeopardy 1999. So it's uh, Jeopardy set in a futuristic uh, 1999, which is funny looking at it from this side. Uh, In this one, everybody has like a big puffy white fro. They're definitely repurposing the costumes from the Star Trek sketch from the last year. So Steve Martin plays uh, Art F-144, and that's kind of a bad impression of Art Fleming. And Don Pardo plays Don Pardo because he was the voice of the early version of Jeopardy. Dan Aykroyd comes out as Danny M125. Lorraine comes out as Lorraine A270. Lorraine gets a huge pop when she walks out. And then Chevy comes out as Lee P413. This whole sketch is a bunch of topical jokes, making fun of basically what could happen with some newsmakers of the day that would be completely ridiculous. You know, uh, the first president to die in office being Walter Mondale, stuff like that. But the last question is what comedian's career fizzled after leaving SNL? And so word by now is getting around that Chevy's on the way out. This took forever the set was great. The music was great. They had everything there as, as it was at the time. Dan shocking the hell out of me by saying in 1983, baby killing became legal and the lasermatic, a laser version of the vegematic. But this uh, went on way too long. Yeah, I feel like the topical nature uh, of a lot of the jokes maybe caused it to drag a lot longer than for from our end of the the time spectrum, I guess. Yeah, it, this one did drag. There, there were a couple of good chuckles, but I also found like I think Steve Martin flubbed like two lines through this too, and and so that kind of made it feel a little draggy as well. Like it just sort of takes you out for a second. And yeah, that the baby killing joke, and they also had a one of the questions was about who assassinated Kennedy, and it just it it seemed oddly dark. Such a good idea. Uh, they'll figure it out. Uh, and I really wish that the contestants had been a little more zany. They weren't zany enough, like, oh, Lorraine Newman loves sex. The contestants had no character. So that was kind of flat. It's like they had a good idea, like, yeah, let's do Jeopardy in the future. And then they're like, we'll figure out the rest later. I, I give Dan points for zaniness. I thought Aykroyd was zany, but uh, yeah, it was pretty uh, pretty flat, uh, Chevy and, and Lorraine. You know, when you look at old Jeopardy, for me, the thing that always blows my mind is that the contestants used to sit. Like, to me, that just seems so weird. I didn't know that. That is weird. Yeah, Yeah. that's before my time, too. Yeah, that would be weird. Oh, yeah, it's definitely before mine as well. But, uh, but, you know, me being me, I've gone back and watched episodes of Jeopardy from the 70s. It's what I do on my Friday nights. So our Chiron, uh, this woman practiced applauding at home. And then we go to our music bio, and it's uh, it's Kinky Friedman. And Kinky Friedman, Chicago-born, Texas-raised. 
He is a musician, satirist, and eventually a novelist. He was the front man of a band called Kinky Friedman and his Texas Jew Boys. He was really into uh, really throwing music and entertainment on its ear, playing with convention to make a point apart from really what he was actually saying or sometimes what he was trying to like symbolize. Uh, sometimes his parody was just the entertainment itself. Very politically charged. At times, nothing was sacred. Uh, he was definitely uh, an equal opportunity offender by all standards. Kind of an interesting career. I certainly don't know if it would fly these days, but uh, it's definitely worth a look. He sings a song, Dear Abby, which was released on the 1976 album Lasso from El Paso. Um, Eddie Guerrero fans will take note. And the album featured like Ringo Starr, The Band, Ron Wood, Dr. John, and Eric Clapton, T-Bone Burnett. And it's the third album to feature Gary Busey. So uh, let's uh, give some love to everybody's favorite uh, drummer from Goose Creek, Texas. Yeah, out comes Kinky. He's dressed as sort of a Tex-Mex getup, and he sings a lonesome love ballad. It's not about the advice columnist, Dear Abby. It's allegedly named for Abby Hoffman. The phrasing of the verses to me was a little too similar to Bobby McGee. I'm not overly familiar with his work, but from what I do know, he's usually quite zany and odd, and uh, we didn't get that tonight, so it was a little jarring. It'd be like if Weird Al came out and sang Stairway to Heaven with no jokes. But this was all right. I didn't know anything about Kinky Friedman, and so to listen to you go over his uh, his bio, he sounds like some sort of Frank Zappa character. You know, so to hear that, very interesting. And I'd be like, ooh, you know, that, that sounds like it'd be right up my alley. I'll go check it out. But if the first thing I saw was this performance, I'm going to stop looking. This was really at a place on the, sh the uh, very energetic, fast-paced show. I didn't like it slowing down for this. And I wish I had seen more of what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, hearing you spell out his, his background and his career uh, definitely feels at odds with this performance. And like when you first see him with the with the mustache and, and the interesting getup, I was I guess I was expecting something along the lines of what you were describing. Uh, I'm not familiar with him either coming into this. And yeah, I found this just kind of really flat and a little bit of a brick wall for the energy and the momentum of the show. I couldn't place what song, but as soon as you said me and Bobby McGee there, Keith, it, it, it clicked. It sounded like something I knew, but then when it turned to something I didn't know, I felt even a little more jarred by it. And so I was not that big a fan. I, I sort of wonder if they kept him at that one because they knew he would do it like without any controversy. Seems like an interesting guy. He might not agree with his politics or whatever, but uh, it, again, he's one of these people. It's sort of hard to tell sometimes if that's his actual politics or if it's uh, or if even that's kind of a work. One other thing I thought is like he came out dressed like that and there's two of the three amigos backstage and I wonder if light bulbs <laughs> went off in their heads. <laughs> <laughs> Just needed Martin Short in there to to make the, the chemistry actually happen. So now we head to weekend update and we get my favorite phone gag so far. You're not supposed to blow on it. That's just an expression. Big kick out of that. It's a couple of quick jokes from the first bit. And there's not much in this. Uh, Carter says he likes to dress up like Eleanor Roosevelt. Chevy refers to General George Brown from the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff as Buck Private George Brown. Carlo Gambino was buried in a pizza oven. Uh, Mao Zedong was buried in a takeout box, which did get a laugh from me. They've smuggled a reporter, or they smuggled a cameraman into Hurricane Carter's press conference as he's getting ready for his uh, appeal trial. And it's really just a uh, very mundane video of Reuben Carter sitting at a desk 
drinking water and uh, folding his arms. Not an overly funny weekend update. I found this was super edgy at times, though. Yeah, I didn't really get too many laughs out of it. It, it definitely felt like, I guess, also it's so topical and, and of the time, though. You know, I'm gonna gonna miss some of that coming from forty something odd years later. It did seem like it was going for some pokes here and there, but I, I just felt flat for me. Yeah, weekend update is often lost on me as well because of the topical nature of a lot of the jokes. I do think that the right person with the right delivery can always make something funny, and I don't think Chevy Chase is just that person. And when I was watching this one in particular, I was thinking about, and you know, because watching, getting to watch Jane Curtin do it for two weeks was eye-opening. Chevy Chase is regarded as, you know, the, uh, he was the first to do it. He's always the weekend update legend. He's certainly not the best weekend update uh, person ever, uh, in my opinion. I don't know. It's just, it's so tired at this point. He feels so tired. It never changes with him. Like his his delivery is adding nothing to the jokes. Uh, the jokes are, yeah, sometimes they're too topical, but that's fine. It's weekend update. It's not a fair criticism. You know, they're they're shitty. They're just shitty jokes sometimes. It's sometimes it can just be really lazy writing, uh, in my opinion. And maybe they're just they can't all be winners. I get it, but Chevy's not doing it for me with weekend update anymore. And I can't remember the last one Chevy has done that I've liked. And Jane's were such an eye-opening breath of fresh air that I just I just want somebody else to do it so bad. Yeah, I've never seen Chevy as the best. Um, I, I wasn't alive at this time. Certainly wasn't watching at this time. But uh, I've never seen Chevy as being anything but the first, which in itself is a, a landmark, but uh, certainly not the best and, and not even, you know, not even towards the top. And as we go through this, it's, it's getting more and more apparent that maybe he just wasn't my style. So we go to uh, our commercial, and it's uh, Steve Martin presenting the Fido Flex, the digital watchdog, and it's a German Shepherd with some uh, digital watch faces on him. Uh, this camera was all over the place. Uh, this, to me, was goofy. It was not great. Nice uh, bit with Gilda at the end where she comes out with a poodle, but even that wasn't enough to save this commercial. I didn't particularly like this at all. So the second half, Chevy brings out Jane. As Jane talks about uh, chlorocarbons, Chevy does this silly thing where he starts making stupid faces next to her. I've already gone through this. I've never been a fan of this. Then uh, Al Franken wanders onto the set eating a sandwich as Chevy reads a story. Chevy doesn't like people reading over his shoulder. Uh, Franken apologizes and leaves. Got a big kick out of that. And then Boom Boom the Gorilla entertained a flight by basically destroying everything and wrecking it all and killing everyone on the plane. I liked Franken and I got a kick out of the Gorilla. Yeah, me too. I actually, uh, I got a huge kick out of Al Franken wandering in. Uh, I was just... Again, kind of like what I said about Steve Martin. Like earlier, people don't know who Al Franken is right now, or, you know, I can't imagine why they would. And so it was really funny in hindsight to see him come out for this quick, silly little bit. That was uh, that was the weekend update highlight for me. Yeah, I love that he had a sandwich in his hand and yeah. like a liter of milk in his other hand, which kind of tied into the milk I had earlier. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like the, the bit with Chevy making the faces behind Jane um, kind of highlights what you were just saying there, Matt, about his delivery. And and it's just kind of like half-assed. Like even when he was making the faces, he wasn't going full in and doing big goofy faces. He was just making sort of like half sticking his tongue out and like wincing his eyes and he wasn't going all the way in. And yeah, it was just kind of frustrating. 
he's checked out. He's put it in his notice. He's just there for show. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you know how fucking disappointing it is knowing how much I like Jane Curtin to see mm. her get brought out there just for this bit. That pissed me off. Yeah, she deserves better, especially after doing his job better for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work. For me, it doesn't work. The live audience actually really loved it. Yeah, the live audience seemed super in on just about everything, though. They really loved the Jeopardy skit when that was even flubbing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I don't know if you ever watched a live performance after the fact on video, like something you were mm-hmm. live for. There's a certain level of energy that doesn't always translate through the camera. And I know this is like stage for TV, but I feel like this show in particular uh, so far and throughout uh, feels very much like the live energy was great, but not all of it's making it through the camera. Yeah. And I mean, they're over they're over in Brooklyn. Right. And I mean, this is an audience that wouldn't normally get to stroll down the street and see the show. Yeah, I was wondering myself if the different neighborhood uh, affected the audience demo. So there's just, you know, it's like, or like, you know, a wrestling show or any sort of traveling thing where you get the fresh faces, you get the fresh energy. It's going to be hot. So our next sketch was written by Michael O'Donohue, and it's called uh, Plato's Cave. So it's beatniks at a club, and O'Donohue and Jane Curtin play uh, two sort of beatniks at a table, and they're just talking about different things, and they first talk about how much they enjoy sick humor. Camera then goes over to Dan Aykroyd, who's a a bongo-playing MC, who calls up Chevy Chase as a flamenco guitarist, and Chevy goes up and does a bit of a flamenco bit until his fingers get caught in the guitar steve martin is then called up as rodney chernan he reads a a beatnik poem a beat poem called oh mr commuter and this is a parody of the beatnik poetry they keep cutting back to jane and michael o'donohue jane gives one of the better lines of the thing she says i love japanese movies oh i mean films gareth then comes out as a blind blues musician and does a bit Belushi comes out as kind of a, a wigged out comedian who uh, accuses the audience of being cops. We get to hear some of his Brando, but he's basically playing a beat comedian who's annoyed that people expect him to be funny. And then Lorraine comes out as Isadora, who does a weird uh, interpretive dance as she narrates it. Uh, what did you think of Plato's Cave? I loved this sketch. It was big. It was ambitious. It was, uh, yeah, it was long. And I don't think all of the jokes worked, but everybody is all in on their characters. thought everybody did a great job. Uh, I've actually thought Steve Martin's bit was the weaker of the performances. But otherwise, I mean, I just, I'm a person who finds the whole beatnik style and era very fascinating in general. So I thought this was a nice poke at it. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. I thought this was kind of all over the road. It had some some pretty high highs and some pretty low lows for me. I think the the through line with like Dan Aykroyd's character being the host of the the jam and and cutting to Jane being super pretentious while she smoked her cigarette like with her fingers had it turned around. Uh, I thought they were they were good anchors for the whole thing. Um, Chevy's bit was just like a, a goof thing. Steve Martin's bit was all right. Uh, Garrett and um, Belushi didn't really hit for me. But then when it ended on Lorraine's like just pure chaos, whirling dancing thing, like I've I've been in the audience at that one person show. And so that one got me really good. And I, I didn't catch the name of it until the very end. So uh, when it was like zooming in on the, the Plato's Cave sign, I had a pretty solid chuckle at that. There's, there is a lot to say because there was a lot going on. <laughs> 
to say, I, I mean, I, I thought Belushi and Garrett were the, the funny two. It's so funny that we, uh, we differ on that. I thought Belushi was on fine form here. This was, uh, this was one of his better performances so far. Uh, Jane and O'Donoghue at, at the table cracked me up. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was long. I didn't laugh out loud a lot, but uh, I, I think I smiled through the whole thing. You touched on it, Mark. The clothes have changed, but these folks are still around. I've smoked at their tables. You know, it's this is <laughs> yeah. This is as one of the dangers of being a smoker. These kind of people oh, seek you out. This is as true today as it was then, and I mean, we could change the clothes, and this has not changed. But what a trip this was. I agree with uh, your point about Belushi, uh, who I don't usually like, so I shouldn't let it go unaddressed that I thought he was excellent. His character was really spot on with the times, I thought. Very very good parody. Looks at books. So Jane is the host of this one. Steve Martin is the author of Sex and Sports. Unlike his predecessors like uh, Kinsey or Masters and Johnson, Steve studied his subjects through binoculars and their windows. And we cut to uh, clips of different sports moments that happened to people who were abstaining, and they're they're doing quite wonderfully. I recognize Johnny Bench as one of them hitting a home run. And then we go to a blooper reel, and basically all these bloopers are caused by sexual activities. Um, some examples are given, like these two guys were with with prostitutes beforehand. This guy's wife was in the dressing room during a break or intermission or whatever. I thought this was funny, and the narrations really give bloopers a, a new twist for me. I, I did laugh at this. I thought it was a pretty good entry of Looks at Books myself. I, I missed Looks at Books. I popped when we got the title screen. I, I generally enjoy this segment. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't a home run for me. I, I thought all the baseball clips were a little eh, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it otherwise. I have a very childish sense of humor at times. So to add... Talking about slightly elevated or out there sexual acts while people are just bumbling around and falling on their ass and missing catches. <laughs> this is like this is some like peanut butter and jam for me. These are two of my favorite flavors of stupid comedy married together. So I love this with with Jane just you know anchoring the whole thing and and keeping the ship steady. I was a big fan of this one. Yeah, yeah. And I was, when I saw Looks at Books, Matt, I was really happy. And then when I saw Jane was hosting it, I was doubly happy. She's so good at it. So now we go to a Gary Weiss film. This one is Autumn in New York. And uh, Weiss lip syncs to the song Autumn in New York while he roams around New York with his camera. And it seems to get random people to lip sync it as well. And as they sing, it's cutting to different versions, male, female, different one. And one of the lip syncers actually turns out to be someone with a rat's head on. This was okay. First thing to remember, and I have to always remind myself, is this was a period of time where people thought lip syncing was like the greatest thing ever. You know, we've seen a slew of Gary Weiss's weaker pieces lately, and I'm starting to wonder if he's just under the gun to come up with something every week, and that's why the quality seems to have dropped. Like, this is nowhere near good Gary Weiss. There were a lot of uh, shows. Eh? Do you remember the like lip syncing, almost like game shows in the 80s? Oh, yeah. Putting on the Ritz was one of them. It was fun. You're right. This was very mid Gary Weiss. But uh, I, I love when we get to see the the slice of New York stuff. So that, that was always fun for me to watch. So it was fun to watch. I certainly didn't laugh at it. I feel like this is one of the, the things that has the opposite effect from the topical humor that we were talking about earlier, 
we're, we're getting to, I wasn't that engaged by the people lip syncing, but watching in the background, New York in the seventies and just seeing how alive it was and, and the character and the, the crust on it that I found that very engaging. And like, that wouldn't have had any kind of major effect on people probably at the time, but for like a little visual historical document, I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I felt like I had to Windex my screen after five minutes or three minutes, <laughs> three minutes of New York from the 70s. Oh, my goodness. Great, eh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so a Chiron comes up. Uh, one, The woman is wondering what to do tomorrow night. Then we go to a uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show, and it features uh, some good impressions here. Steve Martin is Ted Baxter. Dan Aykroyd's Marie Slaughter. Uh, Lorraine plays a mute and unmoving Mary Richards. Um, we get Gilda as Rhoda and uh, Jane Curtin as Sue Ann. And basically, uh, Ted killed Mary by putting Drano in her coffee, and he is then convinced that he has to read the news copy that says he killed Mary, but he changes it at the last minute. To be fair, this is a pretty good knockoff of the show. The set was quite impressive. The impressions were were pretty good, some of them. Ted, Rhoda, and Murray in particular. Um, So much so, when I was a little kid, I actually thought Gilda Radner was the person that played Rhoda. But I can't imagine anyone who's not familiar with the Mary Tyler Moore show liking this at all. It was super long. Uh, the jokes were beaten to death. And uh, and it really wasn't snappy or funny in any way, shape, or form um, beyond making fun of uh, an institution on television. So, uh, you know, big side thumb for me. Yeah, let me tell you, not familiar. So this was not funny. Really low point of the show for me. Took forever. I got that they were doing, you know, a show. I knew it was a sitcom parody thing, but I mean, I'm not familiar. So this was just, this was just dead air for me. I really hated it. Yeah. I think I might've seen maybe one whole episode of Mary Tyler Moore my entire life. So this was, yeah, it it felt like it was a, a full, like the full first half of an episode of it. When this part ended, it was just like, they're going to a commercial break and it was just going to be a whole episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show again dark or mary richards being dead on the desk for the whole skit it was just there's there's a weird dark through line going through this whole episode that just kind of stuck out for me so now we go to mysteries in medicine and this one was written by dan Aykroyd, believe it or not and it's steve martin as dr paul cone and he found a remarkable weight loss product he's got this new thing called blog treatments and I, i love the fact that it's blog Um, So I wonder if Dan Aykroyd is actually the first person to have someone say blog on TV. Jane comes in and she's tried a whole bunch of different diets and they haven't worked. So uh, Steve Martin calls in Hector and Ernie, played by Zweibel and O'Donohue. They enter dressed as pilots and uh, they use some footage to show that they're simulating an airplane voyage and then a simulated dog sled voyage. Allegedly, they go to Northwest Territories, but it's now actually part of Nunavut. And Jane goes into an ice fishing hut where she has to catch her own fish. Blog comes in, and that's uh, John Belushi, and he's playing kind of a, uh, I don't know if he's supposed to be, I guess he's supposed to be an Inuit, who makes Jane fish. And then Lorraine comes in as Midge. She's lost a lot of weight. And basically the gist of this diet is that you get to eat whatever you can catch and hide from Blog. And then we get Jane and Lorraine fighting over a fish, and Blog turns out to be Dr. Mike Blog. It's not at all an ice, an ice fishing hut. It, it's a little mini studio off the doctor's office. And they're watching everything on closed circuit. Whenever someone catches a fish, Belushi puts on his costume and goes in as Blog. This was long. This was convoluted. 
I really wanted to like it, and I just couldn't. This was quite bad. I definitely liked it a little more than that. It was too long for sure, but uh, I thought the premise was great. I'm not surprised. I shouldn't say I'm not surprised. It makes sense to hear that Dan Aykroyd wrote it. I, I thought I thought it was pretty. I thought the parts in the hut with Lorraine and Jane uh, were pretty funny. I don't know. I just liked it more than you, I guess. Yeah, it was long and and really out there. And uh, I feel like there was there's likely some drugs in the involved in the crafting of this one. I, I agree with you, Matt, about the bits in the hut. There was really good chemistry between Jane and Lorraine. And Lorraine got a huge pop with her, her first joke when she was talking about how, how big she used to be and how much weight she lost. And uh, that the audience went off really hard for her there. But outside of that, it was just, it was a little too long, a little too out there. This one needed needed some scissors taken to it in one or two spots. She wants to get down to 10. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, the audience went nuts for that. Our our next sort of last bit is uh, just Steve Martin doing some, uh, some stand-up. The kicker line for me on this one is he's not a, a one-night stand type of guy, and he believes you should get to know and love someone before you use and <laughs> degrade them. This was Steve Martin doing his stand-up. Uh, I liked it. Yeah, that was that was definitely the, the line of the monologue. I was actually kind of expecting him to announce a, a second musical act, and then he just kept on going, so my headspace was a little weird for it. He went really dark by the end of it, where he's talking about his girlfriend and how she passed away and how he just couldn't deal with her anymore. Yeah. It was it tied in with the whole undercurrent of the whole show. It just kept on going to these weird little dark places. Shit. I love that girlfriend bit. That was so good. It was so nice. It was cool to see Steve Martin just get to do stand up. The white hot comedian at the time. It's cool that the show just really let him play to his strengths and that they didn't shove more hokey shit down our throat. Yeah. The show was you know, the episode has been very ambitious, but, you know, they, they they gave Steve Martin time to be Steve Martin. Then we go to the goodbyes, and the tech, again, is all over the place. And I, what I really liked is the cast actually has their backs turned to the camera, waving goodbye to no one. So to follow up from last week, they do do the pullout. Camera pulls out, and we obviously see that they're, they're, not, uh, they're not at Studio 8H. And there's nobody really up on top of the stage there. They, they, there's, a, there's a big gap between where they're performing and, and where the audience is. And I couldn't help but notice that Michael O'Donoghue was there for the goodbyes, which was good because he, he, uh, he, you know, he was in it a few times tonight. Anything from the goodbyes? Oh, just a neat little bit. You know, everyone having their back turned felt felt in line with the the absurd nature of, you know, Steve Martin. I, I haven't been noticing. Is it customary at this point for the musicians to even be out there? Because it is now, and I don't remember. If the only happened. one I remember seeing was Joe Cocker on the Eric yeah. Idle episode. All right, so let's jump into our epilogue. So Steve Martin will, of course, be back many, many times. Musically, Kinky Friedman does not come back. The uh, Lasso from El Paso, I think that might have been his last album that wasn't recorded live for something like 40 years. And ran for governor of Texas in 2006, and he finished fourth. He you know, still does music. He did some writing for uh, a few periodicals. And one of my favorite things is he's he's written a bunch of detective novels with a slightly fictionalized version, version of himself as the protagonist. Um, I'm interested in, in checking out more of this guy's work, and, and I certainly will. So let's get into our ratings here. So for the host, uh, Steve Martin, to me, was a real workhorse. He appeared in almost everything. He was funny even when the material wasn't great. He, he fit in well with the cast, although this was one of them ones where the episode was not good, despite the fact that the host was. Top-tier host, for sure. Gets to stand out on his own and blends in with the cast, as you mentioned. 
uh, one of one of the best. They'll be better to come. Yeah, I would almost say it was impressive how well he carried the momentum and the energy through the bad material. You know, like even when it wasn't that good, I didn't feel like I had to like check my phone or change the channel or whatever. You know, I was still I was still there. So I think yeah, and and the the way that he he uh, the host and he's there, but also during some of the skits, it just felt like he was one of the cast too. Yeah, being able to to do both at the same time, I think uh, there's a good reason why he comes back so much. So for the music, I wasn't overly familiar with Friedman other than the name and what he was known for. We didn't get any of that tonight. This was a nice song, but we've heard a lot of uh, a lot of nice songs. If anything, this might be a gateway to me into looking to more of his stuff and seeing what actually brought him to the dance. But um, I mean, I wasn't overly impressed tonight with this, other than it being just a nice song. Yeah, unfortunately, really out of place on an otherwise high energy, different show. I mean, the, yeah, the show wasn't a hit. I, I was disappointed in it when I watched it, but after hearing you talk about his background and and all the interesting, cool things he did, like I didn't think I could get more disappointed after the fact. And, and the fact that yeah, the the whole episode was it was definitely ambitious and trying new things and and not afraid to get a little weird. And then this super weirdo comes on and just goes the total opposite direction and just does a nice song. It it was not for me. So uh, gentlemen, what was your uh, worst bit of the night? Oh, the Mary Tyler Moore segment was just so long and I didn't have the, the personal background to engage with it. There was a couple of jokes and they were clearly like, all going very hard on their impersonations. But if you don't have a strong connection with the people they're impersonating, it doesn't really do much for you. 100% agreement with Mark here. Worst part of the show. And that's including a dreadful weekend update where I really only smiled when they mentioned David Bowie, who, by the way, is the kind of cool musician that should be on the show. But anyway, I digress. Definitely a, a drag of a sitcom parody for me. My list of contenders for worst is is significantly higher than my list of contenders for best. Okay, I did wind up going with Mysteries in Medicine, though. I'm more familiar with Mary Tyler Moore, and I was actually... Gilda playing Rhoda was, was kind of funny because it was just something I thought was the case when I was a little kid. Yeah, I went with Mysteries in Medicine, but that's really only slightly ahead of quite a few things, so, uh, so that's where I, I sat. So uh, what was the best for you, fellas? Looks at books, 100%. I was giggling, laughing out loud, watching two supposed professional millionaires run into each other and smash into each other's faces and fall on their asses while Steve Martin's making dirty comments over top. I'm not going to say I'm a fancy man. That shit tickled me pink. That was written for you, yeah. My favorite sketch of the night was the uh, the Beatnik Cave, Plato's Cave. thought it was ambitious, and I thought most of it worked. Yeah, it was a little long, but I really think that, you know, trying to spread their wings with ambitious comedy like this is one of the things that's keeping the show hot. It's keeping it interesting, so it's not just the same shit all the time, so I, I think... It's uh, important running and the just and the beatnik thing was just so well done and to, to the to the point you guys made this is still this is still around these people exist 
there are still annoying people everywhere. All of the cast in it, especially Belushi, really hit it out of the park. I loved it. Yeah, your two were my two, and I agonized over this one, actually. I, I did wind up going with looks at books, and that's that's purely because I think it was the uh, the per capita laugh for me was was higher in looks at books. Um, it didn't have any, any dead space, which the beatnik one did for me. But, I mean, different day, different time, different mood. Uh, it would have been the it would have been Plato's cave. So, who is your star of the night, fellas? Lorraine Newman. I don't know if I've ever picked her before, but I thought she was uh, excellent tonight in everything she was doing. She didn't really have a lot to do in the Jeopardy sketch, but her uh, her dance in the cave was fantastic. And what was the other thing? Oh, when she was in the um, when she was at the fish hole with Jim, yeah. and she wanted to go down to ten pounds. That was really a big hit for me. And then just absurd. The fact that Lorraine Newman needs needs to lose weight is just awful to think about. (laughs) But anyway, I I thought she was very consistent all night. I liked her. Yeah, I'm with you, Matt. Every time she got on screen, she just like got a huge pop from the audience, like you said before. And um, yeah, she was just on fire with everything she did. Steve Martin on this one. He was the only one that kept it together for me the whole time. And even when the material sucked, he was good. And and I think with Steve Martin, he actually winds up making far more appearances than half of the future cast does. So I can justify that one in my mind. And Matt, yes, you did pick Lorraine once before. It was the Chris Christopherson episode. Cool. And uh, our final grade. So overall, this was extremely disappointing for me. A lot of super long sketches. There was a lot funny, but there wasn't much in the way of like actual laughs. I, I think what happened is I might have been, you know, in the mood for for South Park, and I and I got King of the Hill, if that makes uh, sense. You know, still funny, different kind of laugh. Uh, Martin was good. The cast was fine. Update is back to being sucky. Jeopardy was probably hilarious at the time, but not so good now. And almost everything else was way too long, except books uh, and books. So I'm really getting the sense that the change of venue is kind of hurting them. They don't have an audience right on top of them. They're losing some reaction, and it seems to be translating. Now, one of the beefs I have with later season is sometimes that the la- the audience laughs and cheers when they kind of feel like they should rather than if something is funny. And I kind of got that sense tonight, actually. And I think it's just this Brooklyn audience being super excited to be there live without having to take nine buses. And, and I think that this audience was really into the obvious and missed a lot of the subtle. I actually gave this one a five out of 10. I definitely felt like uh, there's uh, a few skits that went way too long, but they were at least trying stuff. And, and so I can appreciate that. And there was a fair number of technical flubs and a few line flubs, but they pushed through all of them really well. And even when the material was sucking, the energy was still good. I got to give it a six. I, I, you know, I've, I've watched a couple of bad episodes thus far. And this one, even when it wasn't good, it wasn't full-blown bad for me, if that makes sense. It makes sense to me. It's not a complete disaster. And there have been some really bad. That Karen Black episode was awful so you know when you when i look at something like that uh, and then i look at something like this i say okay a big thing for me this episode as you said mark is that they were just trying new things and i really thought that cave sketch was terrific it sucks the weekend update sucks it is historically just one of my favorite parts of the show later and i really it's painful watching it drag like this with an uninvested lead 
the musical guest was completely insignificant for me. I really liked that there was only one segment of it. I give this a six out of 10 as well. So I go with a five. Uh, Matt went with a six. Mark went with a six. Then averages this out at about 5.7. And the Internet Movie Database gave this one a 7.5. That's Steve Martin glorifying. Like, oh, Steve Martin, that's a good one. It finished eighth in the season and 143rd of all time. Yeah, none of that makes sense. It wasn't that funny. Come on, guys. Did the Internet Movie Database exist at the time of the show and get all the topical humor back then? <laughs> How's that getting over a seven? It's it's love for the host, right? I mean, Norman Lear, which, you know, was a 7.4 on, on the Internet Movie Database, we loved. So I think we're all in agreement that even though this episode kind of stunk, it wasn't Steve Martin's fault. You know, if I was booking hosts at the time, I would be very quick to uh, invite Steve Martin back. Yeah, this definitely felt like a a weak script week, but very strong performance. The writers were having too much sex before they wrote. (laughs) Bumbling about the office, bumping into each other and dropping their pens. Eating sandwiches, drinking milk. (laughs) Getting all mucusy and having a hard time talking to each other. So we'll be back uh, in about a week. We have uh, another, this this is one of the ones on the list. When I look ahead, I see and I get really excited for. So uh, the chances of being let down next week are existent because I'm really, really looking forward to this episode, especially looking forward to doing it with, uh, with you guys because, uh, Mark, you will be back for Buck Henry and the band. How excited does that make you, lads? I'm very excited. Looking forward to this one quite a bit. Buck Henry's had some really solid outings previously, and uh, I'm a huge fan of the band, and I'm a big fan of you guys, so I'm really looking forward to it. Always love the Mark episodes. Thanks for coming by, Mark. I'm not very excited about the band, but I love Buck Henry, so I I am also pumped. And now, Mark, you're not a Robbie Robertson guy, though, right? Uh, Let's not get started on that right now. We'll save it for next week's episode. (laughs) And for me, if 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 you take Graham Chapman in the Holy Grail and you mate him with Levon Helm, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so until then, we'll be drinking milk, having sex, and mating celebrities here in SNL. 